So, I mean, when we come to talk about the Middle East, I mean, I, I don't think that many can argue the fact that we're talking about probably uh, the most volatile region in the entire in the entire world, not because of recent history over the past century or two centuries or the such, but uh, also because of you know the actual um, uh, reasons or factors for dynamism, but also of conflict uh, within the region, whether it be the riches of of minerals and fossil fuel and uh, and the like, or whether it be even in terms of the human resources. You have one of the youngest sections of society across the world probably that are part and parcel of, of everyday life in in the middle east and obviously so many issues i mean whether it be the mediterranean whether it be the the, the issue of migration whether it be all of these issues i mean they make the middle east uh, one of the most volatile probably one of the one of the richest one of the most promising one of the the greatest potentials it's, it's one of the great paradoxes of the region. You have immense wealth, you know, vast riches, but yeah, the chronic poverty, poverty on a level, you know, that is uncomparable on a, on a global level. I mean, this is a region where uh, poverty is on the increase. You know, in other parts of the world, it's decreasing. And you mentioned the, the Mediterranean. Well, you know, um, in 2019, the BBC did a survey and it found that children, people, young young people between the ages of 18 and 29, half of them wanted to migrate. Half of them, because there are absolutely no opportunities in this part of the world. You know, you, you mentioned this, but uh, in two, uh, 2011 or 2012, um, a, a research center that was based in, um, in Germany and uh, established an office in Baghdad did a survey of something around 6,000 or 7,000 um, under 35-year-olds, uh, men and women across uh, the religious sections, the ethnic sections and the such of Iraqi society. And um, over 93% said that uh, if given the chance to, to leave the country, they would. And, and, and like you just said, it's, it's such a paradox because we're talking here about Iraq, one of the potentially richest nations in the entire world with one of the greatest um, oil reserves in, in, in Czech, but, but unfortunately an absolute failed political system that leads its own people to wish to leave. It's, it's, uh, in, in, in the long arc of history, I mean, there should be no reason why the youth from in the Middle East should want to leave the region. Uh, the region, as we know, has been the engine for uh, economic growth around the world. Without Middle Eastern oil, there would be no economic growth, which we've enjoyed in the West, and including China. China is the biggest importer of Middle Eastern oil. So China has elevated 700 million of its own citizens from poverty to you know, uh, middle-class income. Uh, it wouldn't have been able to do that without... Saudi oil, Middle Eastern oil. So uh, it has enough money. It has uh, enough money to feed its own population, to lift them from poverty and provide the basic uh, needs. I mean, um, but politically, it's not been able to uh, create the right kind of arrangement mm. to allow for that, where the focus and the goal is the citizens, is the populations and the people that are under your control in your territory. Um, until that mindset gets changed and in, in an arrangement where politicians feel responsibility towards people who are under their control and domination and sovereignty, 
um, you're not going to have when, that change. When we talk about politics, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that we're going to agree on this. I mean, obviously, the and the wrong kind of politics. I mean, essentially, the we're talking about. But are we talking about um, uh, ingrown politics, politics that are local, that have failed to realize the the the, the potentials, or are we talking about? Uh, the kind of international global politics that sees this area as an area that simply cannot be let free of their clutches uh, for, for the very reasons that you mentioned. We're speaking about two, both of them. You know, the, the local politics, you know, in a sense, without doubt, has failed. Failed the people of the region, um, you know, and that's primarily because of corruption. You would have... I mean, Tunisia is a classic case under Ben Ali where, you know, over 100 companies that were linked to, the, to his family had siphoned off over 20% of the, you know, the national wealth, you know. So in a situation like that, it's no wonder why you have, you know, yani, the, why the region is the only region in the world where uh, uh, that, that tops the list of unemployment. For the last 25 years, the Middle East has been at the top of, you know, of, of the, 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 the countries with unemployment. And, and as you said, there's, there's vast riches, you know, human, over 300 million people, but 65% of them are, are living in abject poverty. Look, look at Saudi Arabia, for example. It's, it's the modern day gold rush, you can say. In terms of the amount of money, the Division 2030 is willing to invest uh, trillions and trillions of uh, dollars. Who is employing? It's mainly Western, uh, you know, um, experts uh, and um, consultants, consultant companies. Why doesn't it have a population which is dying to have these jobs and lift themselves up from poverty to Absolutely. middle class and you know on a on a different yeah, scale I mean, of society. It's, it's one of it's uh, it, I guess I mean when you look at okay so you have the case of Saudi Arabia and uh, it's well publicized you know we all know about the mega projects we all know about the um, the sort of vision 2030 that uh, the crown prince has, has espoused and uh, is working towards and regardless regardless of the controversies within whether it be ideological religious ethical whatever but as you put it i mean if we looked at the mere economic it just simply does not make sense that a single saudi citizen uh, is is hovering around the poverty line let alone over 25% of the population it doesn't make sense that you know there is a single saudi family that don't actually own their house outright when in fact it's only 22 to 23% of the Saudi population who own their house outright. Um, so, you know, th that's fine. But again, if we're looking further afield, countries like Algeria, you know, I grew up reading about Algeria being one of the most important oil producing nations in the world. But you look at its reality, the reality of Algerian youngsters thousands of whom every single year try their best to flee from across the Mediterranean, put themselves and their lives in harm's way Dying in hope of reaching the promised land of Europe, which in itself is seeing a recession. So, I mean, the, 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 the disparity between reality and between the sort of uh, the th theory 
or theoretical potential is, is, is incredible. One thing I want to mention here, and, as, and I think and, uh, Nassim touched on it, is the whole involvement of China and, you know, it's, it's the development that it made over the last decades. And since 2004, because I'm mentioning this because, you know, at the end of last year when uh, uh, Xi Jinping came to the Middle East, the big summit and so on, there was a big, you know, hue ha about the whole thing. The thing, the truth is, China and the Middle East has been involved for over six decades, you know. And in 2004, they had some, they formed something called the China Arab States Cooperation Foundation, where what the Chinese have benefited. Absolutely. They have invested in the region and they have been, but what have, you know, our people in the region gained? You know, that's the problem. And, uh, you know, and, and a lot of the agreements that were made, you know, was about human resource, human uh, development training, scientific training, research, etc. We're not seeing that being translated on the ground, you know. And, and I think, you know, despite these agreements, looking forward, we have to ensure that the people of the region benefits from these agreements, not just the Chinese, not just the Russians. You know, it's, 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 not, it's not on. Following on from that, the, the, the reason why money does not remain within the country and does not serve the population within those countries is partly because it's what's in politics known as rentier states. Countries like Saudi Arabia, many other countries in the region, I think every single one you could say, uh, uh, within the global system, they're more like a rentier states. You know, they serve the purpose of other countries. Uh, Saudi oil, for example. Was this by design or did, did was there a mistake that happened somewhere at the very top and then it just basically incrementally went off tangent. I mean, this is something that often bothers me because, I mean, there are those who might argue that this was by design, this was deliberate. Where we are today isn't by virtue of a mistake that happened somewhere along the line. This was the plan from the very, very start that the riches that um, are flowing from these, from, these, from these countries, for these nations and the such, they are flowing for the benefit of others. Um, and those that say, actually, it was a, a misstep. We didn't have the political foresight. We didn't have the economic acumen. We didn't have the shrewdness that the multinational companies had at the very start. And therefore, we signed on contracts that assured that only a dot you know, of, of, of a percentage of the nation actually benefit from these riches when the entire nation didn't. That is true to our point. Um, and we can say that we less the last half a century from the 1950s onward. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the case where American hegemony really, uh, you know, enforced policies that ensured it benefited uh, to the at the expense of the people of the region. But I think in, 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 you know, there are signs that things are changing in this regard. And, and, and look, yes, in terms of, you know, um, having a greater control over the resources and, and, and um, particularly the oil, because they recognize that the world is moving in a direction where, you know, we want to lessen our dependency on fossil fuels. And, 
what the, 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 the leaders in the region, the Saudis and the Marathis in particular, and the Qataris to some extent, they recognize now that they have to benefit now before, you know, this whole thing is, is, is scaled back. So, in, 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 and one of the reasons why it happened was because the United States, you know, for almost a decade between 2009 and 2020, they began to... to pump what the you know shale oil you know which undermines the prices of oil you know for the middle eastern producers so they woke up to the reality that the americans were undermining them so what they did in 2016 they brought russia into into opec and formed the opec plus you know russia and russia and 11 other oil producing countries to you know to 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 um, protect you know their their the interests all they have is this oil so i i think in that sense it's it's positive it it, it gives us hope that you know um the days when america would dictate you know are coming to an end and people in the region are waking up that you know it's time to have a greater control over their resources also i mean uh, in i mean in in recent memory although it's been 12 years but we had the advent of people rising against the political structures and um, that coined, whether rightly or wrong, uh, wrongly, the Arab Spring, remains to be one of the most remarkable advents of the past 50 years across the wor world, I, I would argue, um, where out of almost out of the blue, out of nothing, in a country as small as Tunisia, uh, we very few people talk about, um, managed through peaceful protests to change its it's, you know, change its leadership. Let's let's not go further and say the political structure because evidently it didn't. But that was a big thing, especially that you're talking about someone just like you described that was siphoning over many years almost twenty percent of the the country's GDP, and um, and a brutal system that is controlled by, followed by Egypt. And followed by advents in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, in, in various other countries, that actually showed that there was um, there was uh, you know the the people had an issue that they wanted to pursue, and there was sufficient awareness, there was sufficient understanding, maturity of thinking, probably, to see that there needed to be radical change but not along the lines that had long been proposed by extremist groups such as Al-Qaeda and Daesh and the like by virtue of, uh, you know, uh, using force and violence, but by peaceful protests. It was remarkable. It was something that, that showed the actual potential, I would suggest. I mean, okay, the, the economic potential we can put figures to, but this potential you can't really enumerate. You can't really put a value on and say, well, this is worth, you know, a couple of trillion because it's, it's invaluable. And it's there. Yeah, it's yeah. It's it's in the cultural memory now. It's it's in the memory of the inhabitants of that region that we we can, if we tried, rise up and change the system, change the arrangement. But um, I mean, I think the verdict is still out on how historically that would manifest. Will in the end the Middle Eastern countries uh, have a transparent demo government, democracy, and all those things they aspire to? Um, in the short term, I just think you know. Um, for a lot of people around the world, not just the Middle East, around the world, uh, they look at the West now at the moment and uh, look at democratic structures. And I think 
they see that a lot of these countries are failing. You know, um, democracy is, has produced Trump, it's produced Johnson, it's produced uh, now at the moment you look at the world in Europe. Eh? Yeah, Bolsonaro. So they're looking at it. In the past, you could beat the Arabs with the democracy stick, you know, and say Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East. But look, is it really? Look, look at your democracy. Look at your US now. Look at the economic uh, problems you're facing here in, in Europe as well. So I think a lot of Arab leaders now, they, they actually can um, claim that your systems failed and we, we, the verdict is still out on democracy. Our system's and working fine. And by the way, fine. they do. They and, do. They and use our that. system's working, you know. We, we've managed to contain democracy in the form of the Arab Spring and, and, and we're working fine. We're progressing. We have amazing economic visions and, and we, we have amazing projects in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia. Egypt wants to do something similar. So the story they're telling is that, look, the West is really failing, uh, which is partly why they can maintain and preserve the relation with Russia, with China, uh, and they're still on the fence when it comes to uh, uh, sorry, uh, Ukraine, because they can sell that story that you know we have a political system that has found its feet. Yes, we may have been too close to the Americans before, um, but it's not the case. We are nationalist. You know, we will defend our uh, our country. We will defend our nation and our, and our traditions. You and know, they're selling that story. It, I to, mean, it's, to, it's quite interesting you mentioned this because um, a few weeks back there was a BBC report about the the uh, incredibly long waiting list for A and E. How patients were waiting for days. You know, with with heart conditions, with severe and quite uh, you know critical uh, health. Um, life-threatening conditions waiting in in in, uh, in hospital corridors and and uh, someone tells me that that was picked up by the uh, regime in Damascus and they were showing this and saying see there you go they you know that's that's the west so all those who are um, pursuing their dreams of heading over to the west this is what the west has to offer it's killing off its own um, you know, people are suffering and such. It's it's farcical to, to some extent, but it's also, also it has a, you know, a, a little bit of reality because the West is actually failing. I mean, if you look at democracy, you could argue that democracy, and, and I, I'm a I'm a, a, a promoter of democracy. I, I I wish that we had democratic systems, but often those democratic systems fall in the wrong hands. And at this moment of time. Um, we're seeing across Europe that through democracy, we're seeing the rise of far right and racist, fascist. Well, Hitler came through, came to power through democracy. Let's say, and not that I, I don't want democracy. I'm just saying the possibilities of various extreme forms of government is always there. I mean, we had we had in America, we had Trump, and and I would suggest that those four years of Trump uh, dealt uh, a blow to the. To, to the concept of democracy like nothing else because it it was the argument against a democratic election that ultimately speaking you're going to end up with someone like like Trump um but let's come back to the to the middle east and talk about this this change that you talked about uh, Daoud one of the things that came to mind as you were talking about this new shift global shift away from fossil fuel and this, and the like that when uh, the Americans called upon the Saudis to, the Saudis just basically they, said no? Yeah, they said, uh, well, in October 20, 
2022, yeah. the Saudis decided to cut production. Yeah. And the Americans said, please don't, you know. Yeah, and they, because they, 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 the, the people they, are they, suffering. The man. price went up from $76 a barrel to 91 <laughs> you know. Yeah. And the Saudis, they, they stuck to their guns. They said, no, we're going ahead. But by that time, now the Russians were involved. You know, the Russians were part of the whole thing. And so the White House was saying that you Saudis, you siding with Russia against us. <laughs> you know, you know, and they were quite upset. But it, what, it, what does this tell us? Does it mean that America is less relevant to the region than it used to be? Does it mean that maybe, maybe, uh, and I'm going to bring in one of the, obviously, the, the events that have marked uh, the past year and a bit, uh, like nothing else, which is the Ukrainian war. Is it at all po possible or conceivable that whilst um, militarily uh, the Russians haven't made the kind of wins or gains that they were hoping for or they were threatening to make, but they have made incredible gains strategically, economically, in terms of their reach within within a region that was that was monopolized by American hegemony in the past? Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you remember, when we go back to the 1980s, the Saudis and the Americans were hand in glove against the Russians, against the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was the big shaitan, you know, the spread of communism. They didn't want communism in the region. But things have changed. You know, the and it's not it's not it's not ideological. It's not that the, the Saudis espouse and the same ideology as the Russians. It's, it's about bread and butter issues, it's about the oil, it's about, you know, their standard of living and they want to protect it. And and I think what happened, you know, in the, the two decades before, yani after 9-11, the Americans squandered their money and their assets in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, they squandered it badly. They lost credibility. You know, they lost their assets and their credibility. And, and, and now they create... You know, they created a situation where the 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 unipolar, you know, international system that we knew before that is changing today. That is changing rapidly, and 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 you see new powers emerging from the south, from the global south, as well as from the north. You know, Russia is coming back, China is there. So, yeah, the, the Pax America is over. You know the the era of uh, in the Middle East as 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 globally. In some ways, that was inevitable because the, the America and the Middle East was kind of a strange alliance ideologically. Anyway, the only reason for U.S. being there and having as much influence it did is because, of course, its dependence on oil in the past, and of course, Israel. Israel's security security is paramount. It still is, um, but there really isn't a, a, a another argument to for the U.S. to be there. Um, and now we're seeing with the war in Ukraine, uh, why many of the Middle Eastern countries prefer to do business with the Russians and the Chinese, because all these years they'll be told, sort out your human rights, sort out your human rights, where's your democracy? So yes, they'll be doing business with the Saudis and the uh, you know Middle Eastern countries, um, but they will also be humiliated somewhat, you know. What are you doing about human rights? You know, and there's all this condemnation and criticism, and no one wants that. And I think what you're seeing now is a departure from that, where they see a better fit in terms of political model with the Chinese, with the Russians, and they're happy to do business with the Chinese and the Russians. And if they can just provide security and sell them arms and weapons, they don't really need the Americans. You know, if the if the security threat is taken away from um, Iran. 
uh, and from their point of view, from the Islamists, as they call them, you know, they, they really don't need the Americans. But they can I, really... I don't think, Nassim, that they would turn their backs on the Americans entirely or, or go against them and challenge them. I don't against. think they can afford to. I, they, they wouldn't do that. Yeah, no, but that's right. It's a question of, you know, putting the, the hanging their bets, you know, where the interests are. You know, if they're going to get some interest, some benefit from the Chinese or from the Russians, it, they will do that. But um, I don't think it's a question of going against the Americans. They, 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 definitely, you're right there. I don't think they will, partly also because the Middle East loves American culture. You know, <laughs> they, they don't want ch Chinese culture. They don't want Russian culture. They consume American culture from food, from the movies they watch. You know, they speak English many as well. So, uh, no, they, they will not completely divorce from uh, the, the Middle East. But I think um, they want to find a, a they want to be in a position, in an arrangement where they can be authoritarian as they like. They don't want that condemnation. Uh, and, and at the same time, uh, continue with their alliance, uh, economic alliance with the with Russia and with China. But I don't think that can be maintained for too long because the way the war is going, I think America will say, this is the red line. We'll you have to stop. Let, you know. Let's see. I think one of the... The, the, the litmus test on this is the uh, the 5G issue. It's what's that company? The high tech uh, company. Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah, I need the Americans banned, the Canadians banned them, the Europeans, and the Saudis went and signed a memorandum of understanding with them. So because they want the technology. The, so far, the Americans have not taken any action, neither the Europeans. Let's see if, you know, how far the Saudis will go on this. But that's... It's like playing political chicken and seeing who who uh, who blinks first. But let's... Um, I mean, obviously, when we're talking about the Middle East and we're talking about the, the political realities, uh, I think that few can argue against the fact that we have three main powers that um, uh, provide the markers of, of shifting elements or dy dynamics or the such. Obviously, we have Iran, and you mentioned Iran, and we have Turkey, and we also have Israel. I mean, those three elements, um, I think, are quite important to understand exactly what, what are their aspirations and how far are they prepared to go in order to realize those aspirations. I mean, let's let's talk about Iran for starts. I mean, um, obviously, the Saudis will uh, make a huge um, thing about uh, Iranian threats, um, uh, threats whether they be political, whether they be expansionist, whether they be ideological, whether they be economic. They'll make a big thing about not just about the Saudis, Iran. the entire Arab League. Well, the, the, absolutely, absolutely. What with obviously, I mean the the. The farcical part of that is that amongst the biggest trade partners of Iran happen to be members of the Arab League itself, such as the United Arab Emirates and, and the like. But still, what does Iran want? It's it's influence. It's 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 it, to spread its influence in the region. You know, um, is it an ideological project, or is it a mere political project that has the guise of ideology? Well, at its core, it's an it's an ideology, isn't it? It's not simply. We're a country, we just want to sustain our um, uh, economy and our population. It is an ideology at its, at its core, uh, just as America is an ideology at its core. At its core is the idea of democracy and trying to spread democracy and human rights as it claims According around the world. According to its own vision. Uh, it, it's gone to wars in the name of democracy and whatnot, you know, democracy promotion. Iran, likewise, I think it, it, it's, it, it's uh, at its core, it's not just a country, 
it's an ideology and it wants to spread its ideology like any ideology it wants uh, to have a military to back it to spread and advance its influence around the region so um it's no different to any other soviet for example you know the communist they, 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 it's, it's states are based on communist ideologies and when you have a state like that uh, then of course if you want to spread that then you are going to do that because your whole reason d'etre is to exist as a communist country spread the ideology your whole reason d'etre as an american is to not just be a country but also spread your ideas uh, Amer- uh, iran is of that mold it's not simply bangladesh let's just survive you know <laughs> we want to we want to also do something more than that which is to spread our, our ideas so it's uh, in syria it's in, in iraq it's in lebanon it's in yemen it supports some of the palestinian factions it's in central africa by the way yeah. i mean iran spread in nigeria and chad in mali and the such as but uh, that has created you know unease in the region i mean because their their, their role in, in in yemen you know has disturbed the saudis you know the houthis if you remember in 2019 they sent missiles against some key strategic installations in saudi aramco exactly and the argument was that they used the you know iranian uh, missiles to do this so that's why the arab league has said well both iran and turkey have been intervening in arab affairs in a very dangerous manner you know and um, how have have turkey i mean are they to, are they referring to turkey's incursions into north syria and and northern iraq and northern also iraq. Right. but also libya and if you remember after the fall of gaddafi no turkey was supporting um the islamist government in 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 the gna for 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 several years in libya whereas uh, uh sisi in egypt was supporting uh, after so that was a recipe for uh, for what for tension for confrontation and and they only now trying to get over it but i think one of the, the interesting thing that's happening in the last year or two is that these non-arab states or powers if we may say iran israel turkey have been trying to reconcile you know with with their neighbors the iranians are, they've been talking to the saudis for five rounds of talks in baghdad you know and and they they want an agreement but on what terms the the turks also they trying to mend fence with with cc they want to mend fence with 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 bashar al assad so the the trend it it appears is that there's there's a movement towards de escalation you know of 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 the tensions and the conflicts in the region and to have a more peaceful region as it were i think that the problem however is with israel why do i say that because what they want is a military uh, alliance against iran <laughs> you know they talking about a middle east nato you know and none of these states are interested am i wrong in thinking that no one seems to have the appetite for that apart from israel the risk is too great the risk you know i mean, I, mean the- i i know for a fact that israel has been calling on the americans to do something about iran militarily for for nine on now 13 14 years and there hasn't been a movement and is it because the americans have let's say learned a lesson in both iraq and afghanistan and as you put it squandered their riches and resources on those two failed experiments so that now they're more uh, thoughtful when it comes to considering a, a military act. or is it that iran is no afghanistan iran is no iraq iran is a totally 
complex system that uh, has, under the international embargo, managed to develop nuclear capacities. And now it's, it's forging military relations with Russia, you know, and cooperation with Russia. It's going to trying to buy um, Russian air defense systems. This is going to change the, you know, the, the, the dynamics in the region in terms of any attack on potential attack on Iran. And not to mention, of course, it's other you know, proxies in the region, whether it's Lebanon or Yemen or, or whatever. So I, I think, you know, their, their position is, is, is quite important. It's significant. And, um, but coming back to Israel, I mean, we know that every few weeks Israel does an incursion in either Syria or Lebanon or the such, you know. Uh, it's partly services. able to because I think Russia turns a blind eye. Um, but I think from what's happening at the moment, I don't think Russia's going to be willing to turn a blind eye if Israel allies completely with the Ukrainians. So uh, that's an interesting development that's taking place. Uh, um, and I think, as we've been saying, Israel's maximalist position when it comes to Iran is what's causing a lot of the tension there. I think most of the countries in the region, since the explosion of the Arab Spring, they just want to return to some kind of norm normalcy. You know, um, let's just see if we can get along, uh, and for at least a decade or so, just have economic ties, economic relations, and try and prosper as much as we can. And, and peace is best for everybody. Everybody wants to do that, but I think. Israel generally um, just feels, you know, it cannot exist in a region where Iran is safe. <laughs> so I think until it uh, come climbs down from its maximalist position of wanting to have some kind of a, a defense coalition against Iran, um, you're not going to, well, you're going to see continuous tension. Uh, that's what's going to be for a long time. We had uh, two, three years ago, we had... Um a huge move towards uh, normalization with Israel. At the UAE, Bahrain, we had uh, Morocco, Sudan. Is it correct of me to say that we've seen that a, a, a lull in that particular wave over the past year or so? Well, I think that the big prize for the for the Israelis is the Saudis. <laughs> you know, they, they really want to get the Saudis on board and every now and then they put out something to say, well, oh, this person met the Saudi official and so on. And we have Saudis who are singing the praise of Israel and re reciting the national anthem of heart. And, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, if you remember last year, since this summer, the Saudis opened their airspace to all civilian aircrafts. Air, 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 air and then Biden said, this is a significant step, a move towards normalization. And the Saudis said, no, not, not at all. This is not about normalization. This is about, you know, our just, you know, our decision to open our space to all, you know, civil aircrafts. We don't know what's happening behind the scenes yet. It's still, it's still, you know, very opaque. But um, in this regard, the, the Omanis also opened their airspace to the Israelis. So, uh, but I think for the, for, for the Israelis, their main prize is the Saudis. Once they get the Saudis on, on board, this is, is going to give a greater sense of legitimacy and, you know, approval, if we may say, uh, to the whole normalization project. And, and, and they're singing that tune all the time, saying once we have normalization with the Saudis, the Arab-Israeli conflict is finished, is over. Is over. That, that's going to be is the declaration over. that this uh, is... But, but, but looking into that normalization, though, I mean, if you, if you 
think there was a poll done recently. The overwhelming majority of Arab countries, they, the, the population, they, they turn up for the normalization. During the World Cup. And, yeah, and, and we, saw, we saw the solidarity with the Palestinians. So, so yes, again, another indication that, you know, that there's a huge uh, gap Disparity between, between yeah, the rulers and, and, and the people on the ground. And, and also the normalization, which way is it? You've got, let's take UAE, for example. A lot of Israelis go to the UAE and you get this image, a UAE is so open and they're doing business with Israelis. And they are to some extent. But to be honest, it's, UAEs there's, there's don't no go to there's, there's no reciprocation yeah. whatsoever. So until the Palestinian issue is resolved, you know, there is no way the Arab population, the Muslim population around the world, or any human being with any kind of decency around the world will say, okay, just go ahead uh, as though... There's no issue to, 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 to resolve with when it comes to Israel So let's Palestine. talk a little about Palestine. Uh, I mean, obviously, we have the reality that we have a far-right government now in, in Tel Aviv. And at the same time, we have internal strife because that's highlighting more the, the split within Israeli society itself, where it's seeing itself. Uh, as someone puts it, um, there's, uh, there's a moral question. Now, that moral question might be for activists like, like us three, for instance, for, has been there for a very long time, since, the, since day one of the Nekba. But for young Israelis now, um, it's posing a real problem. Who represents them? Who speaks for them? Who uh, decides on the incursions that are now happening virtually on a daily basis into Palestinian cities and towns? The, uh, the spread of settlements, illegal, according to international law. How is that um, affecting the, the, the status of, of, of Israel and its ability to achieve its, its end goal? And also, how, I mean, how is it being impacted either by uh, the Russian-Ukrainian war, the Iranian expansionist uh, you know, project, as we call this, within Lebanon and within Syria, which are on Israel's borders, as well as the various economic um, up and downturns across the world, which Israel relies heavily on, especially the United States. How do we read Israel within all of those uh, factors? I think the, the, the contradictions are becoming more apparent as the days go by, you know. And, and it stems from the nature of the system. The political system never produces a majority government. Always have, you know, they've had, what, about five governments in, in the last... It's always teetering on the yeah, brink. Yeah. And, and so we had Netanyahu coming into power and having to, you know, go into alliance with, with these far-right settlers from the West Bank in order to, to become the prime minister. And he's beholden towards them right now. But if you look at the, the, the demonstrations that have been taking place in, 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 you know, in the country, in Tel Aviv over the last months, or two months, it shows us that there is a significant split down the middle of this country. You know, people who are, you know, vehemently opposed to the settlement project, you know, and, and what they represent today because, you know, they are Kahanis. You know, they, they're not just far right. They are Kahanis, people who believe, supremacists, you know, who believe, believe in, in wiping out the wiping Palestinians. Out. Exactly, as they, they, they say. 
And not everyone in Israel espouse that view. So they, they split down the middle. And, and the fear is, and it's coming from the intelligence agencies, from Shebak, you know, and the intelligence officers, people at the top, that this country, you know, can very well go down the route of a civil war. You know, that's the danger. You know, they, they it's so split and it, it's it, the divide is so you know profound that they're saying we can have a civil and war. Is, here. is it is it right also that this is also mirrored in terms of global opinion? I mean, we are seeing um, a greater um, con- contingency or constituency uh, that is opposed. To Israel, that is critical of Israel, and we saw this. You know, whether it be well, last just year this, in Tel Aviv. This, this, this or... week, um, Jewish News um, headline yeah. pogrom. That was the headline pogrom. Can you imagine a Jewish pro-Israeli newspaper having pogrom in response to settlers, you know, torching cars and destroying Palestinian houses? So that's that shows a huge shift, and it's often said, you know, Israel r- rests on three pillars, you know. One is the support it gets from its Jewish uh, communities in the diaspora, uh, a foreign patron, Britain first, then Israel, and divisions within the Arab world. And Okay, put put aside the Arab world, but the other two definitely are, are, are crumbling, well, maybe crumbling to some extent, but definitely the diaspora, the support from the Jewish communities in the diaspora, that's wavering considerably, especially in the US. If you look at the US, uh, who are mainly liberal Jewish communities, they are embarrassed by Israel. Israel is basically losing support uh, every single day. The government is still firmly committed. Yeah, the government is committed, but at least the other plank where as I, as I mentioned, the three planks of Israel's preservation, you know, which includes the support of the Jewish communities in the diaspora, that's wavering. I mean, I would never have imagined Jewish news to have a headline called Pogrom as a result of... I was reading a few months ago um, someone talking about the waning support for Israel within the younger generations that are emerging in London and Chicago and and the like around the world um, and how parents are struggling to embark, you know, the very same principles and the, uh, the absolute support for Israel, regardless, right or wrong. Um, in their kids who are mixing with their peers, who are on the internet, who are seeing all these discussions and also affected and impacted by the, the scenes that are coming straight from, uh, you know, settlements and uh, from uh, from Palestinian towns and cities. So there's protests, they were shouting Israel is an apartheid state. Yeah. These are Israelis in Israel saying Israel is an apartheid state, something which will get you expelled here in the UK from the Labour Party if you were to say <laughs> that. So I think generally there's a... You know, th- th- there's a real mi- gap between Israel and the perceptions of Western politicians here in the West and Israel as it is on the ground, the way it's experienced by the Palestinians and also now many Israelis who don't see Israel as a democracy. They see it as an apartheid state. Palestinians, of course, see it as a settler, colonial, apartheid, racist state. But in the imaginations of Western governments, you know, there's a real gap. It only exists in the imagination. Oh, it's the only democracy in the world. It requires our survival. We need to support it because of what happens in the past. But I think that image is slowly uh, crumbling, and, and and they're seeing Israel for what it really is through the extremist and may, right and maybe governments. and maybe maybe um, uh, that's one of the reasons why we are seeing uh, more brutality on part of the Israeli authorities. We're seeing direct action and total disregard 
for the cameras that are all around the place. And they are, I mean, how many clips have we seen over the past 24 months of direct, you know, shooting, you know, a, a blank point of it's shooting because Palestinians of the, and such. They, they enjoy impunity, you know, that's the, that's the bottom line and, and supported also by the whole, you know, normalization project. They, they feel that, you know, um, well, I mean, it has been written into law in treaty. I mean, when Biden went to Jerusalem last year, he signed an agreement, a strategic uh, agreement, security agreement with Israel called the Jerusalem Declaration, in which he promised to oppose any diplomatic and legal attempts by Palestine to, to hold Israel to account for its human rights abuses. Imagine, you know, he signed that. You know, so whether it's in the UN or whether it's in the ICC, they're going to oppose it. It doesn't matter whether it's a you know close range point blank shooting of a, of a 15 year old. They're going to oppose it. So they they enjoy that. And then on top of that, now you have states normalizing relations as if you know Israel is is an, a normal state. It's not a normal state, you know, but they, they, they're going ahead with this, you know, this, this project. And, and that gives them, that encourages them, makes them feel that, you know, they accepted, they're part of the region, part of the, the, the fabric of the region. And, and you know, it's, it's business as usual. But on the other side, we're seeing uh, also a rise in Palestinian, I would say, steadfastness formidability it's um, it's it's something that i have to say is incredibly impressive impressive even to people friends of mine who were sort of on the fence um, and would sort of mildly support israel generally speaking thinking that the, the palestinians are the troublemakers in the scenario the likes of uh, al-kurd and the likes of uh, other english speaking uh, people very presentable to instagram and to tiktok and the like all of a sudden have their own fan base and they're conveying a, a message that was virtually v absent, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Now that message is prominent. And that message is often seen as probably even more effective than the narratives being put forward by the Israeli ambassador to London or to Washington or wherever they may be. And that, I think, is, is creating... Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare say in equilibrium because there is no equilibrium in this case. I mean, we're talking about the Palestinians who don't have an arm, uh, armed forces, who don't have an intelligence, who don't have the weapons, who don't, don't have the, the means to merely defend themselves. Um, but an equilibrium in terms of reaching out to public opinion. Um, I would venture a guess and say that in the past uh, two or three major incursions, whether it be in Al-Aqsa or Al-Quds or... Um, that on the PR point, Israel lost. So are, are we seeing some sort of shift in terms of how the world is seeing Palestine, how the world is seeing Palestinian resistance to uh, to Israeli brutality? One of the things that's really highlighted with the Ukrainian war, we know, is, is the double standards. But more important than that, I think it's really undermined Western democracies and their claim to uphold international law. And that's because of their inaction and policies in Palestine. People see Western policy in Ukraine through the lens of Palestine. So just their perseverance and the sumud, as we know, you know, their determination, resistance is in, in keeping the Palestinian issue alive. They have exposed the, 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 the hypocrisy and the double standards. And that in the long run, I think a lot of these Western governments realize 
if you go on social media, the number of people are saying, well, what about Palestine? What about Palestine? So uh, on top of that, you've got the COVID issue as well, which has also put doubt into uh, citizens and civilians in Western governments. So one of the reasons why democracy is in peril around the world is partly because people have lost trust in their government. Why have they lost the trust in their government? Because you're failing when it comes to Palestinian issues. I mean, I remember 10 years ago at an at a EU meeting, I asked that same question to EU representatives saying, your inaction in Palestine, don't you fear that in the future, Western, your civilians will look at you and say, look, you guys are failing. You're not the one, you're, you're failing to uphold the very law which you say, you know, you, you, you uphold. And you, in, as a result, you lose all legitimacy. And, um, and I said, yes, that threat is always there. But we now see the consequence of that. The consequence of years and decades of failing to uphold international law is that you've undermined the very democratic structure and fabric which you've built over many, many centuries. And, and the Palestinian issue has done that. They've shown the hypocrisy and the double standards. Because at the end of the day, you know, parliaments, uh, governments stand on a story. The story is that we are free, we are upholding democracy, we are upholding your rights, we are defending you, and we are for the rule of law. That's a story. So, but if that story crumbles by simply looking at Palestine, people start doubting you. And then on top of that, you bring doubts through your the way you'd handle other disasters like COVID, um, then you have a whole population, they lose trust. And uh, the consequence of losing trust that's, is, that's quite is, is the structure yeah, of democracy. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's extremely important. And, uh, and I think that all of us who've been following this um, have noted how over the past two to three years, particularly in the United States, when any word um, of, crit of criticism against Israel would never, ever be heard, all of a sudden we're hearing quite loud voices in Congress. And, um, you know, it's and on media, on, on the mainstream media, whether it be uh, the CNN or, or CBS or, or Fox or the such, where people are coming on and saying, you know, giving the perspective that was never, ever allowed any kind of, of, of air or space uh, before then. So let, let me try to, I mean, from all of this, what do we expect to happen for the next three, four years? I mean, we're not looking into a crystal wall here, but based on the facts that we have, based on the kind of dynamics that we have, obviously there are outstanding issues like the Ukrainian war, how that'll pan out, for how long that'll continue and what kind of reach it'll have. Will it go beyond the borders of Ukraine? Will it reach into Central Europe? The economic crisis, the recession that we were threatened was going to be uh, one of the worst in living memory. Um, uh, Various other, about China, for instance, and how China will, will make its move. Obviously, I mean, we haven't spoken enough about China, but its reach across Asia all the way into Central Africa through its new Silk Road, as, as they put it, well into territory, Arab, Muslim, you know, territory, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, the Gulf region and the such, all the way across Saudi Arabia and Yemen into South Africa, that kind of reach, all of these put together. What should we be looking at? What should we be focusing on to see what kind of real dynamics, real changing stuff will be happening in the next few years? I think what we're going to see is that the internally in the region, the, there is a shift. Um, and traditionally, the power base was in, in Egypt and the Levant, Syria and, and Lebanon. And so that has changed or changing. 
So the Gulf states are becoming more, 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 more influential through their money, their economics, their political power, Qatar, UAE, Saudi Arabia. They will play a more, you know, dynamic leadership role, you know, influential role in the region. And Egypt is bankrupt, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not doing much really. So that I, I think we're going to see, you know, unfolding more and more. Uh, I think we should also watch out the, the, the trends towards de-escalation. Uh, but there are clear obstacles. I'll give you an example. The, the, the Turks and the Egyptians, they have a problem, uh, not only in, in Libya, but for the energy resources of the Eastern Mediterranean. And, and the Egyptians, they sign an agreement with the Greeks. In as much as Turkey wants to de-escalate and to have some agreement with, with Egypt, I see this Eastern Mediterranean energy problem as a stumbling block. You know, so that might not go forward. And they, you know, there is mistrust in Syria. <laughs> you know, the, the Syrians are not ready. They, they, they're going along with it because the Russians want them to do it. You know, but um, they, they're doing it reluctantly. The, the global influence, I think Russia and China, their influence is growing in the region. There's no doubt about it. Um, because of the per perception that America has withdrawn or is retreating from the region, you know, focusing on the Pacific. And, and that perception, you know, it created a sort of vacuum, you know, or opportunities for Russia and, and China to, to advance their, their interests. Um, but the, the crux of the matter is that the, the people of the region are not benefiting from these relationships with China. I mean, there was, there was a free trade agreement as early as 2004 with the Gulf states. What have they got? Nothing to show, you know. It's it's still it's still in its primary stages, you know. It hasn't developed, so you know the in the the international relationships alliances, in as much as they they appear to be changing, we're not seeing the trickling down on the on the ground in the region, uh, Palestine. And I stop here. The whole thing about the, 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 the premise of the American policy in the region is to have a Middle East peace that excludes Palestine. You know, it brings in Israel, you know, the, we settle the, the, the regional, you know, dispute with the Israelis, but the whole thing about Palestine is, it, 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 yeah, that is not going to happen. They could pay Mahmoud Abbas as much money as they want, but without a political solution, you know, it's, it's, it's not going forward. And I think that's the mistake that they're making. They think that they, as long as they pump money into the PA in Ramallah, then things would be, you know, <laughs> would, be, would be dandy, would be fine. We've seen it right now, what's happening in the West Bank. You know, they, it's an, it's an escalating uprising and intifada in the making. So that's the future. I think there is an intifada in the making. Some argue that it has already started. Well, just to add to that, I think we will see uh, the completion of the rehabilitation of Assad. Uh, that's probably going to happen anytime soon. Um, I expect the war in Yemen to finish. Um, the big issue for me would be, you know, will the Will the Americans put a red line when it comes to Saudi's relation with the Chinese and the Russians? That's going to be a big story. And how the Saudis react to that, uh, given that the Europeans need their oil more than more than ever before, Gulf oil, given you know they don't get oil from Russia anymore. Uh, on Palestine, I think the genie is out of the bottle. Israel, as many of us thought, you know, extreme settler colonial fascist has shown its colors. And that 
genie has come out of the bottle. You're not going to put that back in. You, if they were to put, try and put that back in, I think there will be a civil war in Israel. Settlers are one million. They One million settlers armed. Israel has made it, uh, passed a law, giving license to settlers to make it easy for them to carry arms. So these are armed settlers. And to stop ongoing settlements, uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. So um, the interesting thing will be how much longer can European governments continue continue to support what looks like clearly a fascist government? You know, how long will they do that?